0: Hi, and welcome to Redefining Outbound, a podcast series for sales leaders. I'm one of your hosts, Stephen Vickers, Director of U.S. Sales Development at Cognizant. I'll be interviewing a range of forward-thinking sales leaders on how and why B2B buying behavior has changed, and we'll be unpacking why these trends are important for Outbound. Hope you enjoy the episode. Hey, Nate. How are you today?
1: Doing great, Stephen. How are you doing?
0: Very good. Thank you so much for, for joining us. Um... To kick off, could you please just introduce yourself for the listeners?
1: Yeah, so I'll uh, I'll give you kind of the, the quick backstory. My current chapter season of work, um, I'm, I founded a company that's called Fluent. We work with B2B sales teams who are trying to stop losing deals when they're not in the room, and it's all because of this kind of um, problem that I kept banging my head against time and time again, um, building and leading enterprise sales teams, which would be, we were never there when a decision was being made about a purchase. It was always when our reps weren't in the room and the buying team was meeting internally. And, uh, I'm, I'm also kind of a repeat founder. So I have a bit of a product brain that kind of, um, spins around. So a couple of summers ago I was actually trying to buy something for our team. Couldn't find anything to solve it. A lot of what I was seeing was focused on the sales rep and the sales meeting and kind of my like recurring thought was like, but our sellers don't close deals. Our buyers do because they're there when that conversation is happening. So how do we help them? And, um, After uh, continuing to talk with my wife, I'm like, do we really want to go out and build another company? Like, am I crazy enough to to go back to the early stage? Um, Got the conviction of like, okay, this needs to exist. And I can't do anything to help my sales team. So I started building it internally. Spun it out into um, a company with my co-founder, John, that became fluent. So that's uh, that's a lot of my uh, day-to-day work. And I write about that idea. Um, Sales reps don't close deals, buyers do um quite a bit and then uh we had a a newborn baby daughter recently so my uh my weeks are filled with either fatherhood or the founder life and that's uh and i sneak in some kind of trail runs here and there out in uh, denver colorado to keep things interesting so a little background
0: that's amazing congrats on the baby definitely puts a new perspective on life for sure
1: well thanks yeah it does it's uh it's 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 been a lot of fun meeting her especially becoming a girl dad um of all things has been pretty great (laughs)
0: Very cool. Very cool. Well, we always ask every guest, what, what does redefining outbound mean to you?
1: Yeah. So redefining outbound, um, in my opinion, is beginning to lead with a value-based hypothesis. And the reason why I say that is a lot of the work that we do is focused on enterprise kind of key accounts. And the amount of time, the amount of creativity, and the amount of effort that goes into creating a value hypothesis is significant. But there is a significant return on that creativity and time and effort if a rep chooses to invest in it, especially when you're thinking about the highest value accounts, even if you are selling SMB and you're thinking, well, but Nate, I have a more transactional sales cycle. So it's great that you're kind of working with a lot of enterprise teams, but what about me? And there are always a couple logos, opportunities, maybe unique opportunities. Unique accounts inside of your patch or territory account list, even in a more transactional sales process, and if you carve out a very small handful to say, for this group, it doesn't matter how long it takes me to break into those accounts to grab their attention and to, to share something creative that is rooted in something that can move them forward toward their goals, value. That's gonna. That's going to return for you over time. And it is very different from, I think what is, um, more and more becoming the like default easy button. Let's just do as much activity as fast as possible. And so uh, we're, I'm kind of trying, trying to bring back the good old fashioned handwritten, um, personal (laughs) outreach, uh, back in vogue, back in style. Um, and I, I can say more on that, but that's my kind of a thought on redefining outbound is bringing back some like, wow, it's going to take me a long time to do this and it's going to be so worth it.
0: Got it. That's awesome. Well, let's start with the art of multi-threading. You know, you mentioned something pretty interesting in one of your LinkedIn posts, uh, you know, how too much multi-threading can be problematic. So I, I was wondering, you know, could you expand on the concept of unhealthy multi-threading a little bit more?
1: Yeah. So I guess I'll start with my definition of what a complex deal is, which is a lot of people will define it by contract size. Um, oh, we're we're doing six, seven, eight, even eight figure deals. That's a complex deal. I can't be doing a complex deal if I'm selling to um, mid-market or an SMB in a 10K or a 15K contract not true what drives complexity is the number of contacts in a deal in the reality that all of those different contacts have competing and conflicting opinions and incentives and day jobs and you have to bring all of them together to agree to move forward in a direction in a direction with you now when you're trying to do that oftentimes more and more people will join into that group when people don't want to take ownership over the decision they feel like oh, this is a little risky i'm not going to step up and try to corral the group to make a, a decision and move forward so it ends up happening you're like hey let's let's pull steven in let's get his ideas and the group begins to expand and it can quickly become a sign or a symptom of dysfunction number 1 and number 2 if the new people entering the deal aren't adding thing adding something that is unique they have a different perspective that's not already represented, they have another, um, for example, level of influence over moving the group forward, then you're just adding more overhead to the process, more people to communicate with, more people to coordinate with. And so... Too many cooks in the kitchen. Exactly. It's like every group project that you ever did in school. You know, <laughs> it, it doesn't work great. Right. We don't want to go back there. <laughs> Correct. You, you don't want to go back there. So what you need to do instead is try to control the sprawl that is very natural within a buying group, contain it to just the minimum viable committee, just enough influence and reach in order to get a decision done. And along the way, make sure that you are having a, a, a number of one-on-one conversations. This is one other piece that I'll kind of um, uh, wrap with and we can unpack further is people think multi-threading means more and more group conversations, group email chains. How many people am I communicating with? And better is to have multiple single one-on-one conversations because oftentimes people will not say to a group in front of others what they are thinking, but in a one-on-one setting, it's much easier to open up, be a little bit more transparent and get kind of the full story of what they're thinking about. So have multiple threads, but they don't all have to be on the exact same thread.
0: That's great. I like that. You also mentioned how teams should focus on curating a a minimally viable committee. Does this work for enterprise too?
1: Oh yeah, most definitely. And I would say it's absolutely needed um, in enterprise where by default, like every deal that you work on is dead. It starts off dead um, because the amount of deal momentum that you need to build in order to change the direction of a company as large as an enterprise is incredible. And so part of how you build that momentum is you work with high influence contacts, people with the track record and the internal social cap, capital and reputation that can get other people to say, okay, yeah, let's, let's do this. So it's very important inside of the enterprise that you not only have one, but multiple high influence contacts from different types of roles. So you may be, and it's more common to be. Working across multiple different business units inside of an enterprise, each with their own PL, their own set of metrics, and you have to bring them all together to say, "Hey, we're going to do this." So you can you can get away with it in less complex deals, meaning less types of contacts and buying roles and so on. But you, you can't you can't fake it. You need them the minimum viable committee inside enterprise. Uh, I like that. Uh-
0: one of the core ways that sellers can work effectively with champions and the rest of a buying committee comes down to the idea of just really providing effective, thoughtful content. In another one of your your LinkedIn posts, you mentioned writing in two ways, the pyramid versus the, the brick wall. I, I think that's very interesting and was wondering if you could unpack that a little bit more for the listeners.
1: Yeah, so it's a it's a simple principle for writing well in sales, and it goes back to this idea that we started with, earlier, which is the reality that us as sellers, we're not in the room when a buying decision is being made. So the question is, how do we control our message when the buying team is meeting internally? We're not there so that we can shape how that conversation goes down. The content that you create, your writing can travel into and be a part of that conversation. So that's why you need to think about frameworks for writing well. And this idea of writing pyramid style is a great place to start. It's very natural. Most times when they go, uh, when a seller will go to write out a storyline, a business case, a deck, an email, whatever it is, they'll start with where the journey started. We met this person. They told us this, we learned, you know, this, and that led us to conclude that. And if you just flip that upside down and you lead with the point, Hey, we came to this conclusion based on these points we learned in these conversations, which were backed up and supported by this. If you think about the shape of a pyramid, now a lot of people are gonna be you know, listening to this versus watching this, but I have my hands in kind of a bit of a triangle. Like a pyramid, the point is all the way up top. And so you put the bottom line up front. Bluff is another kind of way to say the same thing. You put the bottom line up front, you write pyramid style, put the point there. Don't hit people with a brick wall of text that leads them through the full process to try to get to or pick out the point of it all.
0: I like that. I like that. If if we're talking about software purchases specifically, it's it's fair to say that not a lot of stakeholders are taught how to buy it. You know, in other words, what to look out for during that process. So how can sellers work with their buying champions to help create clarity, you know, in the process beyond just content? Yeah,
1: and the reality is you may have bought something at one organization, you leave, you go to another, and then the rules change and the process changes. And that's what's, what's hard, especially because, you know, buyers, it's like, we talk about buyers as if it's a job, but a buyer is just this like thing that you do fractionally amidst your day job and you do it maybe every once in a while, right? So it's not like a recurring thing that buyers are like, they are not practicing and listening to podcasts on how to buy, which makes it hard. So as a seller, one of the practices that I would encourage is once you've begun to answer the question of like, well, why would we do anything? And why would we do that with you? And you have somebody who's like, okay, let's talk about how to do this. Like, how do we run the rest of the buying process? I would start to build out a series of steps, goes by a lot of names, mutual action plan, mutual success plan, joint engagement plan, you know, pick your acronym of choice. But the basic idea is you are looking at Past customers who have bought and rolled out successfully your product you figure out what are the common steps and you can send an email by the way to these folks after they've bought to say hey you were doing a whole lot of work behind the scenes no doubt outside of what I saw and it would be interesting to compare notes on how I think you evaluated and rolled out our software versus how that actually went down listen to what they have to say Put all of the themes or the patterns there into a series of steps dated based on the typical timeline anchored in a specific date or, you know, kind of to use the salesy term quote unquote compelling event for that particular customer and then show it to them as a draft to say, hey, you know, now that we're we're thinking about um, everybody's on the same page, we have to talk about how we'll actually run this process together. Um, What do you think of this? Lead with a draft and then just ask is there anything that you're saying here that seems a little off, like it just wouldn't apply to you? Or is there something that would apply to you that I've missed here? It's not represented. It is way easier for people to react to something and answer questions like that than to ask a question like, so how would you go about buying this? And then just waiting for them to outline a process. I mean, your point buying is hard and it's nonlinear and it doesn't always shake out the same way time and time again. So that would be how I'd, I'd encourage listeners to go about it.
0: Yeah, and in one of your LinkedIn posts you spoke about anticipating questions, key stakeholders, like, you know, CFOs are, are likely to ask champions when the sellers aren't in the room. So
1: Yeah, that's so. right. And you're I'd say if, if you're not asking the hard questions, even the uncomfortable questions inside of your sales meetings, then you're doing your champion a disservice because it's not a matter of if they end up getting those questions, they will, and you don't want the very first yeah. time that they hear it to be in a situation where they're having to Defend value, thinking about the answer for the first time, and they have nothing prepared.
0: Yeah, not before it's too late. That's for sure. That's right. Yeah. So if if we talk about buying champions more generally, are there any common misconceptions or myths that you could debunk?
1: Oh yeah.
0: (laughs) I know you wrote. I believe. Yeah, I think you had a, a couple LinkedIn posts on. You know, big titles don't necessarily make big champions.
1: Yeah, well, that, um, and I I remember the one that you're referencing, and this was in the context of a lot of people will say, well, I have the CEO or the CRO or whomever, they'll drop a C-level title. Surely they're a champion. And people conflate just having influence for being an actual champion, which being a champion, not an influencer, which is a different type of buying rule, means that you have some type of personal incentive or win in the deal that ties you directly to it. It's like, we must go With and work with Steven versus other folks or going an entirely separate route to hit a particular goal. Most times, executives have a ton of trade-offs, competing priorities, and different paths that they can pursue to hit a particular goal, number one. Number two, they're often not going to be doing the day-to-day work of organizing and building consensus across the rest of the buying team. They're going to delegate that to somebody else, and they can make an internal referral to you. So, a good champion, and here's kind of another um, myth, is somebody who is consistently showing evidence of making progress, progressing the deal internally, not just somebody with the potential to be a champion. So it's always behavior based. There are specific proof points to say, hey, we said we needed to get data from the FP&A team to finish building out part of our case. Were they able to actually get time, get the data, Put it into the joint business case that we've been working on. You know, yes or no, they either didn't follow through or they tried to follow through, but they didn't have enough influence to actually get the data. Both would be signs that, hey, who we thought could be a champion actually isn't because we don't have the evidence of it. And then the very last, last one, which I hope is obvious, but I'll call it out anyway, is oftentimes people confuse a coach and a champion, somebody who is super enthusiastic somebody who's giving you a lot of information and they're like, Hey, this is all everything that's happening internally. And you're like, that's great. And it's easy to think those people are champions, but again, it goes back to this idea. Are they actually able to shape and change the internal conversation? So the three things that we've kind of talked about, there's influence, but there's also personal incentive and information. You need all three of those inside of one contact. If you have influence Then you could be an influencer, but you may not be a champion. And then likewise, if you have information, you're really excited. You could be a coach, but not a champion.
0: Uh, something not related to champions, but I thought was interesting. And I think is extremely tactical or insightful for our listeners. You know, you mentioned how there are really only four metrics that AEs need, you know, annual contract value, close rate, close date and sales cycle. So I was wondering whether you could expand on the why. Uh, you know, a little bit more. What's the benefit of focusing on these data points? Um, I know I keep referencing some of your LinkedIn posts, but I I think there's a lot of great content uh, on this one specifically.
1: Yeah, well, I I appreciate it. I I spend a a lot of time writing. So thanks for, uh, yeah, some just uh, thoughtful conversation around it. So the the different metrics that you just outlined, it all comes down to like, simply put, your job as an AE is to close more deals at a higher rate, higher contract value faster. Those are the only four things that matter. And if if you do those things well, and you focus on one at a time, so for example, you're closing at a higher rate, you're winning a greater percent of your pipeline, or you are winning the same, but each of them are higher contract values. Ultimately, it's going to roll up to, and those are the four drivers of revenue, number one, and number two, from a sales leader's perspective, Of course, you want somebody who is blowing quota and their number out of the water, right? More revenue is always better than less revenue. However, what is a premium for a sales leader is somebody, and this is why close date is one of those points in there. Somebody who can say, look, this deal is going to close on this day and it actually does without slipping. That is a gift to a sales leader because then when they go to let's say it's a director or a VP, they go to the SVP or they go to the CRO and then the CRO goes to the board and says, hey, this is what's coming in when. They need to be able to hit that. It breeds trust and confidence that when Steven says, this is coming in on this date, I can bank on that. It will come in. So if you ask... Forecast accuracy is so important. It is. It is. And that's why it's, it's, it's funny. A lot of um, AEs kind of miss this fact. Most sales leaders would rather hire somebody who is doing 20% less revenue but hits exactly right every single time because they're reliable than somebody who's kind of up and down and who knows when they might have a big quarter or you know totally fall off
0: yeah predictability is so important as a sales leader I've seen that throughout my career where you see more people losing their jobs because of lack of understanding their business and and knowing you know what's coming in and when rather like you said the roller coaster of, I might have a good quarter, I might have a bad quarter. I'd rather be even throughout and, and consistently know what's coming in and when it's coming in.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: Great. Right. So to, to finish off Nate, how would you advise sellers to work with your champions, you know, over the rest of 2023 and into 2024?
1: So one of the the most important things that you can be doing with your champions is thinking about their internal message. When they're with the rest of the buying committee, when they're going to talk to finance what are they going to say? What are the words that they're using? And how can you be certain, number one, that it'll resonate? And number two, that it will actually come out in the way that you both hope. And the way to do that is by scripting their message, by creating a thoughtful, you could call it business case, executive summary, written content, something that they can reference, share around and use to guide those internal conversations. Because at the end of the day. They're putting their reputation, their track record that they've built carefully, probably over a a fair amount of time with that team and a team that they will continue to work with long after the deal wraps up. And by the way, even if it doesn't close, but they went ahead and and put it all on the line for you, are they going to do that with a message that's engaging, that's thoughtful? Um, That's the number one job of a seller. And it's the, it's the shift toward what we talk about as buyer enablement. Your job as a seller is simply put to enable your buyers. They'll close the deal during that internal conversation, but you have to put them in a position to do that, to enable them. Love it.
0: Well, awesome. I I really appreciate your time today, Nate. Uh, It was great speaking with you, learning uh, a little bit more uh, on redefining outbound. So thanks so much for the time.
1: Thanks again for having me.